Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Senator Bernie Sanders, thanks for being here. I know you're busy on the campaign trail. Good to be with you. People are saying that you're running just because you want to be cool, hip, and relevant again. Well, the answer is they were wrong, wrong, wrong. I know you're from Vermont and you probably ate a lot of Ben and Jerry's, but it takes more than ice cream to make you cool. Chris, you're looking at a guy who was in the house. In the house? Come on, Bernie. That's from the 90s. Well, that, that's fair. Yeah, and, and you called me Chris. Come on. You're on the Gary Hour. I do have doubts. Doubts about why you're doing it or where you are. Well, Chris, let's take a look at what's going on. Well, you, you know it's not Chris. You know it's Gary. That is the fight that we have to wage. It's not really a fight. You just got to get the name right. No, I don't. Come on. It's the least you can do. Well, I, I know where my view is. And that's why you're here. Tell us, why are you running? Why should we give you this job? The answer is that I think our political process as well. Our political process as well or is well? Well, the answer what? is, if I can, please. Take your time. Just tell us why you're running. What are you hoping to gain? Massive wealth and income inequality. That's what you want? Well, for a variety of reasons. Wow, this is all really going to your head. Going to the top 1%. 1% of your head. Maybe Sarah Palin was right. Maybe you just want to eat more Ben and Jerry's. Well, she's absolutely right. Really? It's just for the ice cream? It's not about being a better candidate than Hillary? It's not a question of running against Hillary Clinton or taking on Hillary Clinton. I I'm so disheartened. I'm so disillusioned. Good to be with you. So it is just for the ice cream. Of course. Ah. G, 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 take me away. G, 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 take me today. Yeah. Welcome. Music. This episode, we've got comedian Ben Kronberg. Or is it Kronberg? He doesn't even know. He doesn't not know. It's a mystery. But he's one of the more unique people in comedy, and it's a good episode. We talk a lot about art and comedy, and then if you're more interested in the psychological parts of the podcast, we really get into it, into relationships of all kinds, about an hour in. So buckle up and enjoy the ride with me, Matt Kaplan. And Ben Kronberg. Or is it Kronberg? So do you believe in uh, astrology? 
I, I'll put it this way. I don't not believe in astrology. I find the double mm-hmm. negative to be more apropos to beliefs than, than um, full bore positive affirmative yes i do so you're like me where you you like to play with it yeah i i mean i i'm my mind is calibrated to possibilities and ideas and i prefer i prefer thinking to knowing um to know something isn't necessarily i'm right with um, you on that the best for me the best way to experience life or or information i like thinking about it and you know, perhaps weighing in and having an opinion and mm-hmm. hearing other people's opinions. But I find when you're, when your opinions aren't calcified into like, this is what is, you know, it kind of can interrupt uh, communication and also learning. Yeah. Wondering is so much more and being curious is so much more interesting than exactly and telling like possibilities. I mean, mm-hmm. we exist in the world of possibilities, but perhaps you believe in fate or, uh, causality there might be a little bit of all of it mm-hmm. right like your health and your genetics are aren't just hereditary they are somewhat but not strictly right like the things that might happen to you physically later in life might be because it happened to your grandpa and your dad but it might also be because of your your environment and your choices that you make in your daily life and or a combination yeah i also two. believe in the chaos theory Okay. That there's definitely just chaos going on. Okay. I'm sure of that. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure of chaos. <laughs> but um, I was wondering how we pronounce your last name because I've heard it's Kronberg and I've heard it's Kronberg. Okay. Um, this is this is also I think fits into that uh, the wariness of of wanting to be uh, this is what it is because I've had my name pronounced so many ways growing up. Um, do you know how even it's with, even within my family? I mean, how it is, how it's supposed to be pronounced. Uh, Kronberg was the more typical one, but Kronberg sometimes seems to, to be a little bit more intuitive, more of an intuitive pronunciation. Well, it's a, it's a compound word. Yeah. Kron is Kron, a crown. Mo- oh, I and thought Berg it was- is mountain. Okay. It's crown of the mountain. Crown is, of the is, mountain. Is the, okay. Some, some of the etymology. I suppose, but yeah, I mean, so I'll accept either and, and I don't necessarily fuck with people when saying like, Oh, either way. Cause people want to know. Um, but I also, you know, I've had it pronounced so many ways. Kronberg, Kronenberg, Kronenberger. Yeah. You know, all yeah. those things. And it's just sort of like a, some you know. people get very upset when their name is mispronounced. I, yeah. I, I mispronounced a girl's name months ago. It was like one of those names like Alana, Elena. Oh, that's I mispronounced it. She got very mad, but I forgot the correct pronunciation. So I just avoid saying her name. Uh huh. Yeah. 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 The way it's spelled. Mm -hmm. Like there's, uh, Lisa Traeger is a comedian Mm -hmm. in the New York scene. And I remember I had to bring her up once, but I was just reading her name and I hadn't heard it enough to solidify it. And it's spelled L I Z A. So I was thinking it was Liza, you know? But it's Lisa, like Lisa, but with a Z. Mm. Well, who really and cares about these things? Right? <laughs> really? I mean, what's in a name? What's in a name? If anyone gets upset, they really need to just relax. Yeah, it's a you know National Coffee Day. Let's all just let's all just relax. You know, <laughs> a shot of that. So before we get to like uh, Last Comic Standing and Seth Meyers and all this cool stuff you've done, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you: Are you from Denver? Did you grow up in Denver? I was born in Denver. Okay, um, grew up like in the suburbs so kind of like born in the city center and then raised in the 
sort of trashy strip mall suburbs where you know you go to high school and you decide between eating at taco bell or mcdonald's because denver denver to me is one of these places and there's very few of them but like woodstock new york is one of these places where there's just something very odd and peculiar in the water yeah, I, I would agree. I would agree. I, there, there's some interesting things. And in and leaving, moving away from there, I spent 30 years of my life in Colorado and the last 10 in Denver, essentially. I, and I go back a lot. And each time I go back, I kind of get a different sense and, and kind of key into maybe a different little part of the vibe of what's going on. Is it just me? Because I've, I've been through there maybe like five times. And I always come out with a weird story. Like okay. a very odd story. Okay. And like one time I played the 15th Street Tavern. Yeah. And I ended up going, uh, staying with the bartender. Okay. And we get to the, her house and uh, her boyfriend is there. He's smoking crack on the couch. Oh. And we're watching a Gigi Allen documentary. <laughs> and it's like, it would be normal if I was sitting next to him and he's smoking pot. But yeah. But he's smoking crack he's right next little, to me. Little, yeah, a little side of crack. Yeah. Um, watching a Gigi Allen documentary, which is... Uh-huh. Scary. Yeah, yeah. It's not a... And that was just one story. But every time I've gone through Denver, there's been like very weird situations I've ended up in. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that that adds up. I think when you live in a place, you kind of filter out and, and uh, cater to your own desires so you can avoid some of those experiences. But I think when you're going into a, a random city or whatever city it is, mm-hmm. I think, you know, the, the, the ports of, of, of those cities often are i think kind of weird or strange or um you know fringy a bit you know like you might it might be more common to experience the fringe if you're just visiting blowing through doing a right doing a band thing than if you're living there and you know where not to go right because 15th street tavern is not there anymore but when it was there it was sort of like the main staple dive bar venue you know with all you know, all genres, especially leaning like loud, heavy, noisy, things like that. And, you know, some real characters would go through there. And it was, it was definitely like a, um, even when I played the Larimer lounge, it's like, I ended up at some woman's house and it was very, very odd situation. Uh-huh. She, she, she brought me home and she was making out with every single one of her housemates. Oh really? Yeah. It was uh, guy and girl or guy and girl. Oh, and then wow. like, I went up, she brought me up to the, I had a girlfriend at the time, so nothing was going to happen, but I was just like curious of what was going on. I couldn't figure out because she, she brought me home with her boyfriend at the bar and I'm like, okay, this is platonic. This is cool. I just need a place to stay anyway. But then I'm waiting to use the bathroom and she was making out with another guy in the bathroom. She comes out of the bathroom, goes into her boyfriend's bedroom, takes her shirt, leaves the door open, takes her shirt off to kind of expose uh-huh. a little exhibitionism starts making out with her boyfriend the guy she was making out with in the bathroom comes out starts flirting with me and inviting me into his bedroom interesting so they're just want, this is like a swinger swingers house totally crazy hot like wow. really bizarro house wow. and then uh yeah every time i go through denver it's something new okay yeah that is a yeah i mean you know, I've definitely had a handful of, of those types of experiences, some strange. Would you say, because you, you are one of the most unique comics. Okay. That I, <laughs> all right. You really are. You're very, very original. You, you probably know this about yourself already. But I'm wondering how much uh, Denver formed that. Because it's a very eccentric, odd place. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, I, yeah, I think uh, I think Denver informed it for sure. I mean, it, it's where I started comedy, so it was where I started processing the idea of doing comedy. And I had watched a lot of comedy before ever doing it, mm-hmm. and but never with the idea that I'm going to be a comedian. So I just sort of stumbled upon it through music and through performing music and open mics and stuff. And so I think because also I got into comedy through music, um, I was already approaching it in maybe like an alternative way of thinking about doing comedy. And then once I realized like, no, they want you to do jokes. You can't just be a guitar comic. And there's all that stigma upon, oh, so you know, you, when you're a prop comic or yeah. a guitar hack, then, then that's when I started thinking about jokes. And I think just the ideas that I would write down and also, I knew I didn't, I kind of knew early on that I didn't want to have the, the standard, um, you know, tone of like Jerry Seinfeld or, you know, classic setup. Con- yeah. setup delivery. Not that those don't exist in my thing, but like I, you know, so what's going on? You know, like, mm-hmm. I guess, I don't know. I didn't, you know, I thought people that did that were funny, but it, it just was like, so you started comedy by playing music? Yeah. Funny songs? Yeah. Yeah, theoretically, like, you know, funnier than than serious, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up playing piano a bit, but not, I was never that good. And then once I got guitar, it was like after college. and. So that, that's still very different than what you do now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I still, I still have a couple guitar songs that have sort of stuck around that I'll, I'll do at colleges or if there's a guitar around, I'll switch it up. Mm -hmm. Um, but it used to be my repertoire was like all songs and, and, and things like that. Now I try to still try to keep it multimedia and doing some things with my phone Mm -hmm. when I can, when I have a good sound system and rap songs. And I kind of like playing with that, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I've, I've, is there less stigma using your phone than using a guitar? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's maybe a little bit of stigma, but I think the most, the stigma that I've encountered the most is, was making the choice of using my notebook on stage mm. outside of just a, uh, open mic, um, context. Did you get blowback for using a notebook? Yeah. Yeah. I kind of did. It was, it was a mix because I would get, I would get sort of, um, you know, criticism, judgment, but then I would also get people that I, I would realize that, um, you know, people it was were, the thing that was standing out. Yeah. It was the thing that helped you stand out. And when you're performing in a bunch of things, you, you want to be the funniest, but you also want to be remembered and memorable, right? Because you want to have people, Hey, who's that guy with the notebook yeah. is kind of how it'd be referenced. Whereas the, the reference that somebody would have to make if I wasn't using the notebook would have to be, Hey, what's that guy with that one joke about poop? You know? Right. And which, you know, probably still happens, but I don't always use my, my joke book on stage. Cause again, I like to not have a, you know, stereotype myself or pigeonhole myself into having to do a specific thing, but I still, you know, like to be able to do it. Now, sometimes I'll use my phone instead of my notebook. Cause that's where I'm writing most of my ideas now just because it's like right there yeah well, it's an interesting thing especially being in new york you know where we're surrounded by creative interesting people how to stand out not just as a comedian but as a musician or whatever your art form yeah i mean i, I don't think you i don't think you have a problem standing out at this point because what you do is very unique and you'll definitely stand out in a crowd of comics I hope, look, I hope so, because I'm... <laughs> yeah, definitely, but it's weird. I think I've been using... 
I mean, you know, you see a bunch of comics and you see like a comic might get more laughs than others. Yeah. But I often come away from the night not remembering anybody's bits. Yeah. Now, either I'm really dumb and I can't comprehend or like, but then sometimes it's like, oh, I remember that bit or I remember it's like if it's something, it's if it's about something interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard for me to recall people's jokes. Generally, if I am watching somebody and I'll get an idea for them, I'll remember that joke just so I can tell them the the tag, like, hey, mm-hmm. you, maybe you should try that, you know, because I think that's a, you know, helpful, um, you know, contributing to your own specific niche of society where you're like, you Well, that's know, a whole other thing. If you think of an idea for another comic, yeah, do you offer it or do you just keep it to yourself? Because some comics are not open to that at all. Yeah, I mean, again, I think it's if it's somebody you never met before, but if it's somebody that knows that I'm a comedian and they, I might suspect that they respect me or like, hey, you know, I'm glad, really glad you're doing the show. Yeah. If I have an idea for them, it's a lot easier for them to take. But if it's just some stranger that has no idea who I am, I'm not as apt to like, hey, I have this idea for a joke. But if it's a friend um, and somebody that I've known in the scene mm-hmm. or whatever... I'll, you know, definitely not hesitate to do that. But then sometimes it'll be somebody will say something you're like, cause, cause there's that thing of, if you give somebody an idea, they might be resistant to it and not even take it. And then at that point you're like, Oh, I could have just made that my joke, you know, like, right. you know, gone that angle with that topic. And I mean, you know, at that point, can you say, well, if you're not going to use it, I am taking it. It's yours. Look, if, if you, you want don't it. want it, but yeah. I'll, eat, uh, you know, yeah, I'll, fu- I'll yeah. fuck that girl. If you don't want to, you <laughs> yeah, know, exactly. I yeah. gave you here. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you ask them first? Hey, I got an idea. Are you open to it? Um, not necessarily. Cause I'll usually, it'll just be in the moment and after they get off stage and, you know, generally, you know, typically people will write it down because if they think about it and think it's funny, like I wouldn't say it if I didn't think it would add to mm-hmm. what they're doing or wouldn't be appropriate. But a lot of times the the only contribution I have to somebody's set is like a, like a word player pun because that's, I do a lot of that. So I'm like, oh, you could do that. You right. Because I'm always just, I have more puns than I know what to do with. So it's like, here, you have one. I see. I do that need. a lot just to get through a show is I'll watch and just to help my comprehension to try to write tags for people in yeah. my head. And I rarely tell people because I've found that they're just not open to it. Maybe because I'm not, you know, as experienced as you. Well, but, or just, yeah, whatever the relationship is. But yeah, I think that's a good, it's a good um, productive thing to do while watching comedy. It helps. It helps. Yeah. <laughs> it it's like, sure it does. Cause your mind gets your mind going and I mean, what do you do? I mean, that's how like a writer's room is probably, I, I guess. Um, yeah. You know, somebody saying something and then somebody adding to it and just sort of that, the piling of it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the interesting thing about stand up, you know, and a lot of people think they're funny with their friends, but then they try to do stand up. And with stand up, we have to create our own uh, setup. Yeah. Where with you, with your friends, there's already all the background and there's, yeah. you just got to knock out little jokes and it's much easier. Yep. Setting the tone, setting the premise. Yeah. It's a yeah. lot more work. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah. Just conjuring it, you know, just yeah. like, a, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's an interesting thing. I mean, dealing with, dealing with it 
every day just thinking about, all right, I got to perform. I want to try these new jokes, but then I get up there and I'm don't have the confidence for the new jokes. And so I'll do the old, old jokes or the mm-hmm. old, you know, the thing to just be like, okay, I, I remember this, I can say this and I just have to get through this time. But if I can, I'll try to get out a couple of new jokes in any given set. Not, not, um, open mic, even open mic. You're just trying to like, Oh, I, I have this joke that's been doing okay, but I still want to, have it be more solid. What know? what do you do to kind of uh, wax and wane it to form it to hit? Um, just keep saying it, not trying to say it at any given time. I mean, because I I do a lot of non sequiturs, but if if it's a if it's a joke that maybe helps to have context, like if I'm doing jokes about my dad, um, maybe I'll do this new joke about my dad after this old joke, you know, mm-hmm. versus just trying that joke naked within, you know, so surrounded by other topics. I'll, you know, try to lead it in, give a little assist with, you know, a similar idea. Right. So you'll change, you'll put it on a different place in the order. Yeah. And I'm, mm-hmm. I used to be better with, and I want to be better with always starting with a new joke cause, or trying to, trying to open up a set with a brand new joke as opposed to, all right, here's what I know my solid opener is. And then, I'm really? going to lead in. Yeah. Really opening with a new joke. Yeah. Or something or trying or trying a joke as an opener, like even a joke that I've heard, but just, and just seeing where that takes me as opposed to, cause if I, if I start with the, the jokes that I know and are kind of like my introductory jokes of like, here's my type of humor or whatever, then that usually just keeps that track going. But if I can start with something that I'm less familiar with, then I can, figure it out and then maybe try to do the old the old opener within the set and see how it goes there just to you know but isn't that the riskiest move you could do start off on shaky ground with a new joke yeah yeah it it could yeah it could be seen as risky um i wouldn't necessarily do it like on a showcase per se Mm -hmm. or a um a show uh you know like a comedy central half hour yeah comedy central half hour show i'm getting you know paid good money for but there's so so also, many performances you're a sellout. happening. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I am. Um, it's, it, yeah, it's it's hard. I mean, I mean, sometimes you'll you know observe something about the room or the situation, yeah. and and then open up with that, and that can kind of help you get like they're like, oh yeah, he joked about our mascot. You know, like we're listening now. You know, because you something. kind of cater and placate the the audience a bit mm-hmm. with. You know, that's where, like, a lot of comedians opening jokes are self-deprecating jokes. Like, I'm like, uh, I'm like the Oak Ridge Boys with the cross between, you know, I'm yeah. cross between this right. and that. S- saying what the audience is thinking. Yeah, and yeah. On your side. Yeah. yeah. So that, you know. Why does self-deprecation work? Why does the audience love to think they're above the comic? I don't know. I mean... I think it's just it's comfortable because somebody's making fun of themselves and so when you're making fun of yourself you kind of disarm disarm people's um not judgments you engage you give them permission to judge you which I think is what they're already doing as opposed to if you open up with talking about another group they would already have to be on your side, you know, like Louis Mm -hmm. CK can be very brash or Chris Rock can be very brash with an opener because everybody already knows them and they're on their side. So they, they almost have to go that other way where they're like, right. You know, 
I, I think also audience can sometimes be intimidated by a comic because mm-hmm. it's a, a position of power, and I think that bridges the gap a lot. Yeah, too. yeah, it takes you down. You yeah. takes you down to their level as opposed to trying to be like. It's a weird thing, though. It's almost like this. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but it's almost like the same thing that people like to watch a public hanging. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah, that's. I don't know. Is it that same sadistic I, sort of human thing? I think that's that's a severe comparison, <laughs> <laughs> but but memorable. I think applicable. Memorable. That's what we're going for, right? Mm-hmm. We just want to be memorable, not funny. I mean, you want you want to be funny, but the, I think sometimes you can focus too, so much on funny that it becomes abstract, and it's hard to hard to be funny. And if you focus on and just like you know, just go go to the left or something adjacent to that funny, like like how you're saying things or you're memorable, you know, trying to be memorable. The other stuff is still close by the being funny, but you're just focusing on a different, you know, right. A different thing. Yeah. That's interesting. I'm definitely still finding myself with all that. That's, yeah. The self deprecation thing. I, it's so funny. Cause the example you gave is my current opener. Okay. Yeah. What is it? The My current opener. Oh, I'm it? like this cross with this. Yeah, no, I mean, but it's a, it's a, <laughs> it works every time. It, yeah. It's such it's so solid. It's I'm like, all right, you know, well, I think, I mean, it's good. And I think it helps, it helps to be able to, you know, then you can kind of go in different places. It, yeah. It's like a, I, tr- I try my new stuff in the middle, you know, like, I want to yeah. start off on good ground. Yeah. Yeah. And then close strong. And Gary, what are you crossed with? What are your two things? Um, Borat with a young Janine Garofalo. <laughs> that's good hey it it made us like your your whole thing a little bit better now it even got a laugh with my two friends that's great i'm more comfortable now yeah just tell me more tell me more (laughs) yeah then then that's admirable that you start on shaky ground that's uh not always i mean there's i definitely have my the things that i do but yeah i mean i think like my self-deprecating stuff tends to be more when i'm talking about my dad and my estranged Mm -hmm. relationship with him or that i haven't talked to him and that's kind of how i become self-deprecating is sort of like feel feeling sorry for myself or presenting you with my sob story as opposed to right that's an interesting form of self-deprecation because that's almost like you're conjuring the audience's pity yeah i like that i want to think about that for myself (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, it's interesting. Okay, so you've been on a lot. Of, you've done. A, you have. You have a lot of little notches in your belt, Mister uh, Kronberg. Kronberg. You've Mr. been on Kronberg. Jimmy Kimmel. You've yes. been on Seth Meyers. You've got a Comedy Central half hour. I have done that. And uh, you're on Last Comic Standing. Yes. And you had a little altercation with Roseanne Barr. I did. And she told you to go fuck yourself, didn't she? She, she did. <laughs> she did. Some people like even some people that ask you about, they're like, so Roseanne told you to fuck off. I'm like, no, not exactly. She told me to go fuck myself. <laughs> yeah. You made a very punk rock decision. You know, I only saw the edited version. And yeah. It's so heavily edited. It's very edited. Yeah. That must be really uh, painful because you're really putting your baby in their lap. Yeah. It was, you know, and it was opposite of what they, the producers and Wanda and then this other producer, I forget what her name is. Um, but they assured all the comedians in this room before we started taping, they're like, we want this season to be different than all the other seasons. Uh-huh. We, you know, we want you to succeed. We're pro, you know, we're pro you guys. Um, you know, if the, uh, if the judges say something that you don't, you know, agree with, you can 
you can talk to him. So that's kind of what, you know, that little nugget is what I took to whenever, whatever happened, happened. Yeah. Um, I was like, okay, so I couldn't say something to this. I don't just have to be like, oh, okay, thank you. Oh, so, I'm so sorry. what happened? I mean, I, didn't you open with that for your Comedy Central half hour? Or I've seen that you've done that joke before. You opened with that yeah, joke so that, before. Yeah, so that was an opener that it worked. That I and it, it does work. And I, it worked I did, on Last Comic. Yeah, it did work on Last Comic, even though they cut, you know, they cut a little bit of the laughs, but it worked as as I wanted it to work. And they also put, um, they also put a ticker. Like a little time, a little clock, which was condescending. Yeah, it was like because the 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 idea of the joke. So let's is set it up for a listener okay. that hasn't seen it. Okay. So Ben comes out, and uh, maybe thirty seconds goes by. You don't say anything, but you're very interesting looking, and you're doing something. There's a lot of potential energy happening. Yeah, it's not like you're standing there totally dead still. Something's I'm, about to happen. I'm going through my notebook. I'm flipping through. I'm going back and forth between pages. I'm shaking my head i may be like approaching vocalizing something but i try to i try to sustain it and hold it for as long as possible to build up the tension so when i finally say what i say it becomes like oh that's what he was doing lots of tension yeah. and relief yes yeah. yeah so i would do that and then i would say what you know eventually like after 30 seconds or sometimes a minute i would say what like you guys start working right when you get to your jobs <laughs> And and the audience laughed. Yeah, and, and they they laughed, and then and then that became, you know, her going, uh, Roseanne going. You know, I think you wasted a lot of time up there. You know, you wasted a lot of our time. <laughs> she yeah, said you, it really angrily too. Yeah, I think you wasted. A, she's a Scorpio, so oh. it, makes, it makes a lot of sense with that. But um, I wasted a lot of the time time up there, and then and then I told her I was like, oh, I wish you would have um, opened with. I wish you would have opened with a compliment instead of a criticism <laughs> you know like since we're yeah. since we're judging how we're coming out of the gate how about mm -hmm. this and kept going back and forth and she's like you know what you're really arrogant and i was like well my I, my mom taught me to be confident so i guess that's her fault you know uh -huh. and <laughs> yeah. and so just kept going back and forth and then you know she you know went back and forth like that and then i think keenan ivory wayne's and they cut a lot of this out but keenan ivory wayne said like um you know that's a that's a hacky it's a hacky bit or what you're doing is hacky with the uh, um something and with the I, notebook? I don't know whether it was hacky with the notebook or hacky with my opening bit but they basically called me hacky and I was like I was like I'm you know what about this show the show is kind of hacky <laughs> yeah, the show yeah. is kind of like whatever you just called me and then she, you know, she said, go fuck yourself. And then as I got off stage, she flipped me off, but they didn't show her flipping me mm. off, but I wish they would have. And yeah, you know, did you know that that was going to happen or were you worried? I had no, I had no idea that was going to happen. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what they were going to, how they were going to take me. Do you, uh, do you meet the panel, uh, beforehand? Do they see any of your material beforehand or was this your, their first, meeting of you on stage. Um, I'm not sure what they had seen of me before, but they, I know that my initial audition to get on the show that was just in front of producers was taped. Mm -hmm. So there might've been a little bit of, um, pre writing down of things and, you know, people get update, you know, people might've had a little mini dossier on each. So they didn't, they comedian. didn't, they didn't screen what you were going to do like they would on a late night show. I mean, they screened, I, I, when I auditioned for the producers, 
I auditioned with the jokes that I did with the, that opening bit and whatever. And they said, they said, okay, yeah, do it. Huh? So it was sort of the sort of, uh, yeah, you can do that. Sure. Yeah, you can do that. <laughs> They're sending yeah, you out to the slaughter. Yeah. Was, was the third you? person Norm or was this a... a it it was, um, what's Russell, his name? Russell Peters. Peters yeah. He's um, big in Canada. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, and they were, it was just encountering comedians that you, like I grew up, you know, watching In Living Color and even Roseanne and um, not as familiar with Russell Peters, but still I respect these people for making it as far into the, in, in this business and mm-hmm. doing comedy and stuff. And to have the, your initial, uh, the initial thing with those people be kind of this for judgment. I kind of knew that's what was happening because it's a competition show. So they have to eliminate people. So they're going to have to find things that they don't like about certain people and, and juxtapose them with the things that they do like about other people. So I knew I was getting into that, but um, you know, having, ha- having done comedy for a long time and done enough shows where I'm confident, in, not always, but generally confident in the choices that I'm making. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, but also like there are hundreds of people that perform on the show and there's many you don't even see. Yep. Right? Yeah. So, so with my, so that choice and the thing that happened allowed me you know, then they put me like on the first or one of the first two episodes that they showed. And then the whole thing, the aftermath and getting all these memes made and having people send me videos telling me to go fuck myself. It kind of helped me because again, mm-hmm. I didn't win the show and theoretically not the funniest, right? In the, in the whole spectrum of that. But because of what happened, it allowed me this memorable moment and also taught me the le- lesson of controversy within mm-hmm. the entertainment industry, which more as many people, if not more asked me about last comic standing and what happened. Right. Then like, Hey, how was it doing a, um, comedy central half hour or what's, what's Jimmy Kimmel like, or yeah. what's, you know, all these other things. So it's, it's interesting. And so, but it helped keep me on the radar and also insiders and comedians kind of knew the, they could see the transparency of the situation, but then other people, you know, that didn't know me were, would side with Roseanne. But again, that I think keeping people having an opinion about you is another thing that you need to think about with, you know, you don't just want to be, you want to be funny, but it doesn't always hurt to have, you know, a polarized scenario about, about you because Mm -hmm. then, you know, people, the people that do like me wanted to come to my defense and actually be like, that was fucked up. Yeah. And so that almost made stronger fans having, you know, uh, having that happen to me than had I just faded into the, the ether of, uh, right. NBC cutting room floor. Like who, who was the third runner up of that season? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but you know, it, it's a thing, but it, you know, kind of help, help keep me on the, mm-hmm. the thing. And I, I, I'm surprised you didn't, realize that it was a risky move because i feel like these america's got the talent and last comic they're very similar they're very all american yeah you know you're not gonna win that show yeah you know well yeah i knew i wasn't gonna win it necessarily but also it's such a mainstream you, you do get um i don't know about how america's got talent or american idol go but you get paid you know you get paid for a tv spot to be on it and then when they re-aired it i got paid again because of the whole 
okay. you know, residual scenario and oh, SAG cool. after stuff. So I ended up getting a couple paychecks out of it and then some, you know, some bookings of people that, you know, kind of identified with mm-hmm. my choices or riskiness and yeah, it'll help your audience find you. Yeah. I mean, I, I, when I, when I saw it happen, I thought to myself, Ooh, Ben's taking a risky move here. I hope it pays off because when you were doing it and they put the clock up, I was thinking, Oh, they're going to hate this. Yeah. This is so not mainstream. Yep. And, uh, I was so glad that you were able to parlay it into something bigger. And then I realized, all right, that was a risky punk rock move, but you got a lot more airtime than many other people that we know. Yeah. Just didn't get any airtime whatsoever. Yeah. And you got paid. And I got paid. Yeah. And a little stipend. They gave gave us a little stipend while we were in L.A. shooting and flew, you know, took care of business. And it was nice. So I And also during that taping, I was able to double up. And, like, basically the night before was my first time, but I did at midnight. Right. Um, oh, yeah. Cool. So that was this cool combo of being able to go out there for something, you know, riskier. But then also the, the at midnight experience, like set me up for oh like they want everybody to be funny on this yeah they help you out you know they provide all this cool stuff for you they pay you they pick you up and you know they treat you how you should be treated as opposed to just being corralled into a room with other comedians being nervous and having like a chicken skewered and on a little you, while you wait yeah it's nice sometimes right like they ask you what you want at midnight they're like what do you want in your green room like what do you want to drink or eat or anything and you can be like i want some you know, I want some Espelon. I want some... Uh, Isn't that nice sometimes? Yeah. I I do feel like too much of that will ruin a person, though. <coughs> for sure. Yeah, I could. But it, it, it you know, definitely doesn't happen to me. Enough. Too much. <laughs> it doesn't happen to me too much. I'll take some much. more. Yeah. And did Hardwick tell you to go fuck yourself on the show? <laughs> um, no, he didn't. Because it, it was before that even happened. Oh, okay. And then, and then Last Comic Standing, I mean, that aired like that night or the next night. The, at midnight but the last comic standing it taped then but didn't air until you know three months later right so i knew this thing had happened and i had to sit on it for a while and then once i saw it i was like oh that happened i'm curious about at midnight because uh when you watch it it looks like everyone's really sharp like do they give you this the uh, the jokes or the hashtags beforehand you definitely get get a heads up for the things, and then they have writers there that help uh, that oh. help, help you, you know, kind of contribute to any if you're drawing me blanks or whatever before the thing. So you kind of some of it's 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 a mix because they they want you to just talk as much as possible and banter and come up with off the cuff ideas, but for certain things they you know they want you to have, you know, be prepared. Otherwise it would just be a bunch of dead air. Yeah. So they, they prep you like any talk show. Yeah. You get, yeah, you get prepped and yeah. Like like that, if you go on Bill Maher, they tell you all the questions he's going to ask. Yeah. Yeah. And you can have, have it, have it in the chamber because it's TV, right? Like that was the other, the irony of being criticized for using my notebook on stage is, is the, the reality that like when I did my half hour or when I did any late night set, I would have either teleprompter or cue cards, right. You know, with my bullet points on them to kind of, you know, jog my memory and keep, keep it going. And, uh, so for Seth Meyers, you had a teleprompter, Seth Meyers. I think it was, um, I think it was cue cards for, for half hour. There was a teleprompter. 
for the half hour comedy central yeah right because you had a comedy central half hour so you set up your own teleprompter well you you email in your jokes mm -hmm. and um and then they put it just the bullet points not the full did you email thing did you have like little affirmations for yourself you're doing yeah, great you're doing great yeah <laughs> keep going yeah there is i mean i think just mom the, loves you yeah the the <laughs> thing itself the fact that my jokes made it onto a teleprompter is kind of an you know the, the <laughs> affirmation is there within the how bad the thing but yeah. you know so i mean that's the thing like all the uh, talk show hosts or that's what they're doing they're they're reading all their monologue jokes off the thing mm -hmm. and they have their they have their note cards there right like stephen colbert has his little pen and his note notepad there with things on it and mm -hmm. so it's this interesting thing of like wait so wait they can do that on tv but whenever i do it on on stage it's like i'm i'm the interesting yeah. yeah maybe you need a another person to have cue cards off stage yeah 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 <laughs> that'd acceptable. Be, oh that'd be a good idea that's a, that's a really good idea but it seems a notebook is as much a prop as providing your material Function, yeah yeah i mean it kind of yeah kind of became that and allows for certain things and creates that curiosity of like people coming up to me after like oh is anything and then is anything in there? Cause my friend says he doesn't think there's anything in there, but I think there is. And so it kind of creates, you know, an opportunity for opinion for people to have and, and a curiosity and some, a reason for them to talk to me after the show. That's, you know, not just like, Hey, great job or thanks, you know, mm -hmm. which you can always look into. It's like, Oh, great. What is and they're just smiling. Did they even like it? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's television. It's gotta be good. I mean, yeah. even at midnight, it's pretty edited. Yeah. I mean, it's clearly edited because all of a sudden someone has like 900 points and they had 200 yeah. in the second before. Yeah. Yeah. They definitely, you know, shoot more than they show. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it's really fun. It's a, it's a fun show. I've done it a couple of times and I'd like to do it more, but you kind of have to be in LA to do it. So I have to, I kind of have to be like, Hey, I'm going to be in LA, even if I'm not just to get, <laughs> you know, just to get the show. Yeah. But it's also nice to go out to L.A. and have something to do because it's the, you know, it's the land of what are you doing? Yeah. So let's set up some chronolo chronology here. Mm -hmm. So you started in Denver. How long were you doing comedy in Denver before you moved out? I was doing it for about five years. Okay. Um, and all these late night and the Comedy Central, did that happen in Denver or did you have to move out to L.A. or New York? Um, yeah, I, I had to move out. Like I... I went in 2007, I went to the Aspen comedy festival, which was like the HBO comedy arts festival, like kind of the Montreal counterpart, but in the mm -hmm. States and, and that's while you were living in Denver. That was while I was living in Denver. So I got into this festival and like I submitted a tape and then they had me come out to LA to showcase. And then, then they let me know that I got in the festival. And so then after that I had like, and had you dropped the guitar at this point? Um, how did you find I your... had I hadn't fully dropped the guitar. I still did guitar, but I the thing that I submitted was just jokes. Okay. So there's like, no... like like we can see now. Yeah. Similar to what you do. Yeah. How did you come to your style? Cuz the starting from the guitar and what you do now is pretty different. Yeah, I mean I, well I think the guitar like so I didn't the guitar and making songs is like an opportunity to just come up with jokes and like even a bunch of one-liners as opposed to telling a story. Like mm -hmm. Some people might tell a story within a song, but sometimes it's just like a, you know, just a little mini string of ideas that would be like, 
jokes individually Mm -hmm. perhaps did you find there was a learning curve because i have a music background you know i've done a lot of performing with a guitar in my hand yeah and it is kind of a you know a linus blanket kind of security thing yeah and then i found that when i started to do improv and stand up i felt i felt more naked Uh without that thing yeah i definitely felt that um do you think that's one of the reasons why you keep the mic in the stand Mm, a little security yeah yeah yeah, that could be one of the things, or even with the the notebook, it just gives me another little thing to have as a as a friend on stage. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd never had the. I'll try. I'll try to do it to like test myself and to you know expand my my performance. So sometimes I'll take the the mic out of the stand and see if I can do some stuff just to kind of play around with it. But it's definitely not what I do typically. Do you feel more naked when you take the mic out? Um, a little bit and it kind of, it does change how I do my jokes. And I think, you know, creates the scenario for a little bit more energy. Cause I'm not like slowly pacing, like, um, you know, what's his name that I would get compared to occasionally. Chad um, Berg, Steve Wright. Stephen Wright. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they might, you know, like I think Mitch would like hold it close to his chest. Yeah. Like do that. Um, not necessarily keep it in, but I like keeping it in. And then I've come up with some jokes and try to use the the space to be, you know, a little bit physical. So sometimes I'll do a thing with the the mic and the mic stand where I'll, you know, kind of like take the mic out, put it back in. Like I'm kind of like jerking jerking it off off and, you know, just kind of start out like that. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like, uh, within the comedy community, they looked down upon the guitar when you were playing it? Was there a stigma? Did you feel that? Yeah, there was, um, because it would be like definitely people would like it and it would help me stand out and i think other comedians wanted to hey this is stand-up comedy let's be on an equal playing field and that's mm. like you know considered like steroids or performance enhancing <laughs> you know choices or whatever but um now i think it's a little bit more accepted because just comedy is exponentially growing mm-hmm. each year like from when I started in Denver to now and I go back and like there will be 50 comedians at an open mic in Denver at an open mic, you know, it wasn't like that when you started. No, there would, there might, might've been, you know, 10 or 15 of us mm-hmm. that, yeah, that, would I do be, think- that would be doing it. But now there's just so many and people are like moving to Denver because the Denver scene is hot, you know, and all those things and legal and, and it's legal. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's got, it's got multiple, Multiple reasons. Is it the Denver scene that's hot, or is just comedy, stand-up comedy in general, kind of hot? Well, I think it's the yeah back and forth or the um, cyclical thing of uh, you know Denver. Denver's definitely like a hotbed for comedy, but only because comedy is now. It's the new hot. rock and roll. Yeah, it's like a it's a thing, and I mean, it's daunting to think about and all the new people and new jokes and st- you know, all the, all the things happening and then getting up there and like staying relevant when I go back there or even here and mm-hmm. just, you know, trying to keep the momentum, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be able to be considered and get booked, um, in places and there's still comedians that are working, you know, they're, they're funny and they're funny enough to, to get paid and blah, blah, blah. But, but the actual that tipping point of opportunity that that happens and you need to to make happen um i've been you know booking myself even having had an agent here and there and manager here and there right now i'm pretty much 
represent myself with the exception of colleges, which is a whole different You have a college weird booking bag. agent? I have a college agent. But Did, it's not like I'm like, hey, you got a college coming up. It's like, hey, there's a showcase coming up. Do you want to apply to it? And then, okay, send me $100. Okay, here's $100. And then I have to wait to see if I get in that showcase. And then right. if I get in that showcase, all right, give me $300 more um, so I can get the booth. And then and then got to fly myself out there and put myself up. And so to, to even like engage in the college scene, the typical scenario is probably an investment of, you know, 500 to $800 just mm. to get, get into the showcase. And then from that showcase, you perform from a bunch of colleges from whatever region. And then is that the annual thing? Uh, it's got an acronym. NACA. NACA. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So NACA, I mean, it's like, each region is annual, but there's like, you know, there's the Northeast, there's the West, there's South, there's the mid America, there's mid Atlantic, there's, um, you know, all those, all these different regions. So you'd have to, you know, sometimes like I'm shelling out $500 to apply to five different regions, mm -hmm. maybe get into one. So then you're already down $300, but like I, it was how I started and how I moved to, to uh, New York was, was, because I was doing colleges and making good money and, and working in colleges where you didn't have to be a name and you didn't have to be like a, a draw to make money. Whereas in comedy clubs, if you're going to make money, you have to be a draw. Otherwise you're just making the minimum amount. Yeah. But like I could make even like low end being not that recognized of a comedian in the, in the whole spectrum of it. I, you know, I was making better money doing one college than I would if I was getting the minimum money at a, at a comedy club. Yeah, colleges are the cash cap for sure. Same with music. Yeah. Yeah, I used to book my band, just go right to student activities mm -hmm. and uh, get bookings sometimes that way. Yeah. It was a lot of work for one gig. Yeah. But when you got it, it was a nice payday. Yeah. Yeah, and I've also been wondering about like um, like sororities and fraternities and I think because they have their own money to spend you know mm, that's right. outside of the thing mm -hmm. to kind of think about that sort of um that market as a potential because it's like sometimes the colleges aren't yeah isn't it interesting like these days i feel like uh artists have to be pretty kind of business savvy for better and for worse yeah i feel like uh in the 70s you can be a, you could fuck off so much more because there was a lot more uh agents and a lot less competition mm -hmm. you could be a jim morrison type not facing the audience and you know doing all kinds of acid and yeah there wasn't so much competition and nowadays i don't know you gotta have your shit really together <laughs> it's kind of annoying yeah yeah because the the romantic notions of these of these professions and these you know taking this path as opposed to that path is like you know encountering the the thing but we have all the resources at our fingertips and i get really good gigs just using facebook twitter um you know maybe even instagram and i try to pay attention to who follows me on twitter and things like that especially mm -hmm. because if they're a comedian and they're at the the center of whatever scene that they're in then i try to like be like oh hey what's up if it's a place that i haven't been or would like to go i i just send them a message or whatever and it's it's happened like you know recently i got a I got into this festival in um, Winnipeg just because uh, the festival was following me. I was following them, but then they had liked a, a tweet 
and then I was like, who liked, you know, who liked this tweet? And they liked the tweet. And yeah. then I saw that their festival was happening in like, you know, less than a month. And then I just decided to message them, not expecting that they were going to be like, yeah, come and do the festival. You but just I was messaged like, them through hey, Twitter. Yeah. Through Twitter. I would love oh. to come do the festival. Do you have any open spots? And they're like, well, actually we do. We'd love to have you. And then I was like, oh, okay. Nice. So then it was like, it was like this thing of like, okay, well, it doesn't matter that I don't have the most followers, but I have enough followers and am active enough on there to have Twitter be worth it, you know, yeah. and other things that I've, You've you got know. a verified Twitter account. I've got a verified Twitter account, so that helps a little. <laughs> you how know, did, adds how a little that credibility. It's like this mysterious thing. I think it happened. It happened once I uh, did the half hour. Did the half hour? Nice. Yeah, so that I was, think that helps. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That helped that thing. So you've done comedy in several countries. Yeah, you did. You did stand up in Asia, in uh, South Korea, South Korea, so all over South Korea, Seoul, and bunch of other cities um fukuoka japan which is the ramen capital of japan yeah perhaps the world if you're gonna talk about ramen now um, how is that like because i mean i love stand-up comedy more than i love performing music but i do feel like music is it transcends language yeah and um, how does that work with stand-up well i think the when, when i say i've done comedy in those places the 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 thought is like oh you're doing it in front of the local people there, which um, it's really, it really has to do with expat communities. Okay, so I'm performing, right. you're basically kind of like what they do for, um, you know, uh, like USO tours, but mm -hmm. just for expats, mm -hmm. you know, so it's just people that are in Korea or in Japan teaching English there and they're, they're English speakers, but from, you know, Australia, England, um, United States and and so then you're you know it's mostly for English speakers there's a couple there'll be some local flair in there but that also becomes a little you know part of the 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 charm of it it's like hey this this American guy has this Korean girlfriend and he brings her to the show and so yeah my girlfriend didn't really get it but I loved it man how cool would it be in the have you seen Google Translate the they keep updating Google Translate app uh, oh yeah yeah it's amazing you could face it towards text and it'll translate the text oh yeah on an image you could speak into it and it'll and it'll translate it to translate language, it to any yeah. language so how cool would it be it was stand-up comedy if you can just speak through some little device and then it translates it to everybody yeah, there. then you, you lose the delivery of it and that's so much that's such a big part of stand-up right yeah it could add it could add its own little angle yeah that's a good idea um you know, if you if you were doing it for a local thing, or even having a translator with you, like a live translator, would be cool. Um, I'm going to Iceland for a festival in like mid late October, and I'm like, you know, but but I think they speak. You know, this isn't necessarily for an expat community because mm -hmm. it's it's for a like a festival in Iceland that they're. They have comedians there, so... They speak Icelandic. They speak Icelandic. <laughs> and then, um, which is a very difficult language with super long words and things like that. But mm -hmm. I think because they're they're already pitched with that sort of uh, dense intelligence of language that they, like them in Denmark, they speak English very well. So they can even like be a little bit more, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, the, you know, The Office isn't their favorite show, you know, or whatever that, so, I mean, and they, you know, the, it the, probably is right now their favorite show, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, cause I sent my, my jokes and I was like, you know, this, this 
gig I got through a friend who had been to Iceland and he was wanting me to go with him. And I was like, well, I can't just go on vacation. I have to be like, when I leave, when I'm flying, I have to be flying to do a gig. And then he's like, okay, I, I know this comedian girl. And so he introduced me to her on Facebook and then got talking with her. And then she introduced me to the guy that is having the festival. And then we started that dialogue and, and got it going. And, um, are, are you I, like that? Because I'm, I'm, I'm like that also, where I don't want to travel unless I'm doing a gig. Yeah. It just seems stupid and pointless. Yeah, it's, it's weird. Plus, I like to have something to do there because you'll... Yeah. I don't want to be... I don't want to be expressly a tourist in any sort of place. I want to be mm-hmm. functioning and contributing and feel my own value in this space and then also, like, do the cool thing or go to the cool place. But I've, I've never been a big tourist. Like, mm-hmm. whenever I've been in a touristy situation, I, I get antsy. Well, it's such a different experience. And I had it myself, my band, my old band, we toured Europe several times. And uh, the experience being there as a guest, as a musician, as a guest, and you have, you know, natives hosting you. Yeah. You get this really great inside experience yep and then we stayed after the tour was over and we just like stayed and you know traveled amsterdam and cologne and around and man was it different and not nearly as fun yeah yeah it's weird (laughs) yeah it kind of sucked you know i was like wow it really made me appreciate this experience of uh touring to exotic places as an artist where they are helping you yeah yeah it's an interesting do you think being in new york and how long have you been in new york now then um I think I've been here about six-ish years. Okay, so you've been here long enough. Do you think, like, we're... Because, like, as New Yorkers, we hate tourists, basically. Yeah. Do you think we're more sensitive to that? So if we go somewhere else, we'll be like, uh, I do not want to be a tourist here. Yeah, I don't want to be that douchebag. Yeah. I think that... Yeah, I think that makes sense. I would agree with well, that. Well, I just think that they don't treat you... like, Especially in Paris. I mean, at Paris as a tourist was rough because I felt like everyone was trying to get one over on me. Uh-huh. When, when I was there as a performing musician, everyone was like... Here, let me whisk you to the next place. And yep. the treatment was just so great. Yeah. Here, have this wine. Yeah. Uh, then that's, that's, that's 12 euros for that glass. Yeah. Well, it, it's just being able to like answer uh, the it question. three on the board. <laughs> yeah. Like, what are you doing here? And if you have, if you can answer that, like you actually have something that you're doing there, mm-hmm. it can't really be like criticized. It's like, oh, that's neat. As opposed to like, what are you doing here? Oh, I'm just looking at stuff. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, like, oh, really? What are you? No, but what are you doing here? Then you're suspect. Yeah. So you moved from Denver. Mm-hmm. Where did you go? I went to LA. You want to tell? So you did comedy in LA. Mm-hmm. Uh, what years were you there? I was there. I was there like 2008, 2009. Okay, I was in New York then. How was it? How was performing? Uh, how would you compare the scenes, the styles? Of stand up in LA, <laughs> um, more there's more like charactery stuff happening seemingly in LA, like like because people are more calibrated to be actors and actors getting into stand up comedy, so there was a lot more people that would tr- try characters on stage. I found mm-hmm. um, so more animated in general. Yeah, or just you know, yeah, just trying those different, you know trying acts within acts sort of thing as opposed to just jokes there was definitely you know joke tellers there but there was a lot more actors doing comedy and then how can i you know parlay this into a role yeah Mm -hmm. um because you want to be you know seen you want to be seen you want to make money you want to you want to be successful you want to uh la is so career 
heavy, isn't it? Yeah, it's very, it's opportunistic. It's, um, I mean, it, it, appropriately so. It's not like it shouldn't be, but it's, it's very much like, you know, uh, comparisons like and stuff like that. Whereas even the success happening here, I don't feel it so like the the ego um insecurity um thing that that would happen in in LA. Yeah. I it's I feel like here it's more washed out with reality mm-hmm. and real things and just yeah. regular people. Yeah. Yeah, I'd have a really hard time with that in LA. Just it's all entertainment industry and then Mexicans. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Just like, I just want to be a regular person. Yeah. It, it's, it's a hard place to be a regular person and, and just kind of have a good time. And I... I hated know. going out in LA. Yeah. It was okay, but it's not like, oh, cool. This is a, you know... I, I feel like know. everyone was almost always on the clock. Yeah. Just, a bit of that. But there, I mean, there's people doing really good stuff there. There's really funny people there. And, uh, I <laughs> wish them the best. Yeah. I wish it took, the best. It took a while for me to find it. But uh, once I moved downtown, I was living in Little Tokyo. Things got a lot better. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a little bit more of a other things going on. Absolutely. Actual visual artists. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was much, it was refreshing Refresh. for sure. So what made you leave LA? Um... A girl had moved from Denver to live with me. We lived together for about six months. Um, and then we ended up breaking up and the lease was up and I started, that's when I got a college agent and I started touring around colleges and just traveling. I didn't really have a place in LA. I was staying with my aunt and uncle when I was back in town or crashing with people. So I was very experiencing the transient transition and, then I visited my buddy in New York, and I'd been here a couple times, but I'd never Brooklyn. I always just experienced had Manhattan experiences because mm. of what I was here for, and um, and then I was like, you know what? I'm, I think I just want to move here because I'm traveling around. It doesn't really matter where I'm at necessarily, but it would be nice to be in a place that has stuff going on and opportunities and showcases and stuff and. And then I just decided to do it and I crashed on his floor for like nine months and got on my feet and, um, do you feel like here is home? Yeah, absolutely. Um, or do you feel like Denver's home? Well, uh, Denver is, uh, I mean, <laughs> I, I feel I want to, you know, I mean, Denver is where I'm from. Does right the concept now, of feel, home make you cry? It kind of does uh, because I, I've. Are you worried you're going to offend New Yorkers if you say it's Denver? No, I'm worried if I'm. I'm worried if I'm. I'm going to offend Den, uh, Denverites <laughs> if I say it's New York. Um, yeah, I mean, they. I still have a lot of opportunities and people that I care about in Denver, but you know, when I go back there and I'm there for whatever length of time, I'm like, I, you know. I need more stimulus happening oh God, to yeah. motivate for myself. Like there's people there that are doing quite well and things like that. But you know, like I went to a meeting, you know, I went to a meeting at comedy central the other day, but because I live in New York and I'm able, you know, I already made that connection, but for me to meet, go to comedy central to pitch them an idea. Yeah. And I live in Denver. 
that big. costs like you know what i'm saying like the, your, the whole your ordeal. idea better be good yeah yeah exactly <laughs> and so just those things that happen and um i don't know it's just like shows galore here and you can't mm-hmm. it can't be duplicated really it's like it's just you know cool opportunities always coming up and yeah and also i mean being uh performing with like some amazing talent yeah i mean i can't speak for the denver scene but uh i know when i do stand up out of new york it's i'm surprised at what a better reception i get okay and it's tough here i mean it's not tough but you're you're with the cream of the crop yeah it feels like yeah for sure and i mean i think anybody that you know, builds the the confidence or makes the choice to come to New York or go to LA. They're doing that based on, you know, again, their confidence level. So like, I think people that are here are really, truly hungry for it, not just dabbling in it. And not that there's not people that don't want it in other cities, but it's really Mm -hmm. easy to get comfortable in a city that, you know, supplies you with enough stage time and with enough competition to where you're getting better, but not where you're always having to get better or you're always being confronted with like, Oh, who's this new person? Or, Oh, this, you know, Oh, I got to follow Jim Gaffigan on right. the show. Yeah. <clears throat> How long would you say it took you to find, uh, your voice, your unique voice that you felt was true and honest to yourself? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. Like, I think it's, my voice has changed a bit and is constantly evolving even in, in the slightest way. Like I used to be a lot more, I just do my joke. I, you know, this one liner that I come up with, I just do it and wait for a laugh and then do another one and kind of be more, um, robotic. Yeah. More like, you know, just, I'm just doing these, these ideas, but the more that I got into it and performing and also like, all right, I'm kind of sick of these jokes. I want to, I'm having thoughts while on stage. Sometimes I want to be able to say them and also see how they combine with these other jokes that I have, or see if I can start a set by just talking about things and observing things and then find ways for jokes that I have to come in to kind of incorporate them differently. So Mm -hmm. I think I've, you know, started to say more on stage and not just be so like joke, quiet, joke, quiet. Right. Starting with some improvisational things where people where the audience can sense that it's in the moment Mm -hmm. i think is uh it's almost always going to work is that what you do when you were saying before you start on shaky ground is that different than starting with a new joke than starting with an improvisation Mm -hmm. i mean i think yeah i mean it it's all all the all different and all the same but um I think the the shakiness that you're referring to could also just be the um, perspective of what you're doing or what's going on, right? Like, if you choose to be nervous about something or like go into something with just that that angle of perspective of of nerves or not being sure, versus going into it being just like excited of like ah, I gotta say this thing because this, this is the thing that has to come out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. You're not you're not considering and letting the the insecurity infiltrate that moment, which is very easily you know it's very easily penetrated by insecurity if you're trying a new joke. But there is something potent 
about that insecurity. Uh, yeah, and it will just about the new idea that like anything could happen, and it's not just another predictable situation that I know. You know, I know that when I touch this part of the rib, you're gonna giggle or squirm. You know, like right. I want to be able to find a new place to to come in and. You know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but then being able to move on and... That's that ethereal thing that uh, audiences react to. Like, when an audience can tell the difference between an improv and something that's pre-written. Mm -hmm. And I love it with a stand-up when you could see when they click into material. Yeah, yeah. It's such, yeah, a, yeah. such an ethereal thing. It's, it's yeah. I love it. So awesome. Yeah. And I don't know if audience... It's so almost subconscious that audiences pick up on that. Yeah, you know, sometimes I feel like when I go into material from that stuff, I feel not as strong with the material as if I would have just done material and established myself as jokes and these jokes or what I'm doing. Sometimes I feel like, okay, I, I'm i not going to be able to make them laugh as much with this idea because I've been, you know, all over the board or try, you know, doing this sort of frequency and this train of thought and then to get him back onto that thought mm -hmm. so you're thinking about dynamics almost musically yeah yeah i mean i always i definitely have more theories than i do practicing of the theories you know like i always have like oh maybe i should do this and try to do that and sometimes it works but sometimes i'm just like i want to i just got to get on stage and tell jokes but sometimes i can be like okay i'm gonna this set is gonna be all i'm gonna just see what all parental jokes, you know, all mm -hmm. jokes about my family and parent and relationship and kind of ex grow out from there. Mm -hmm. Um, or all, uh, but isn't that how all we, puns or whatever. Isn't that how we prepare like for any art form? You kind of run it through your head. You might run a situation through your head and you might think of, Oh, it's going to, I got to do this. I got to do that. And I got to do this. But then you kind of f learn it and then forget it. And hope that it kind of planted itself in, a, in your subconscious. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So you can just operate on instinct. Yeah. Like with it, and Matt does improv, like with improv, you learn all these rules and all these things and tools, but then you're not thinking about it when you're, you're just hopefully empty your Zen. You're just in the moment. And hopefully all that stuff you've learned and all the experiences you've gotten through life yeah. and work. Do, do you think out. though, I mean, you both came from a music background. Now you're both stand-ups. A stand-up obsesses about their art before, maybe not during what you're saying, but like afterwards where probably you're walking down the street, you're taking a shower, whatever you're doing, you're thinking about your material, you're thinking about how you're going to approach it. Uh -huh. You couldn't get that from music. As much as you would think about music, it's not the same obsession that most stand-ups have. Do you think there's something in your personalities that you need to be you know, 24 seven obsessed about what you're doing and your art that, that brought you to stand-up? Now we're both being interviewed. Uh-oh. <laughs> Um, I mean, I th yeah, I think the it's nice to have something fun to obsess about because I've obsessed about all the things of like, you know, I had like OCD when I was younger and I would obsess about like whether my hands were clean and just always have to wash They're my not. hands. <laughs> <laughs> or like tie, I'd have to tie my shoes perfect, like where the bows were equal or things like that. Like I, I had weird anxieties about those things and I think maybe they grew transferred or... or matured into maybe just like i think weed discovering weed sort of helped that like thinking about things differently but also also being able to just like focus on one thought and be able to 
not be like, I should be doing my laundry right now, but just be like, no, I want to figure out this poop joke. I want to figure out how this, you know. Well, it's interesting that we'd helped you not obsess. Well, no, I think it helped me obsess in the right way because it, mm. it also, because weed gave me the, the sort of like alternative, just slightly shifted perspective of, of things. Right. It refocused your obsession in a more, uh, yeah. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, better results getting from it. Yeah. yeah. Cause I get healthier way. Yeah. Cause I notice when I, when I get ideas, I, I tend to get a lot of my ideas or am most connected with the idea realm when I'm not thinking about something. And so that's usually just being out in, out in the world and then having something happen and then the, the filter trigger be like, oh, wait, that's something. Or I just said something or that, that thing happened. Or falling asleep or waking up or on the toilet or in the shower or, you know, maybe right after smoking weed are these moments of, you know, where I'm not thinking too much about anything, but, but thoughts can come in mm -hmm. that I'm not planning on. I'm not just like in my waking state of, all right, I should be, I should be doing this. I should be sending an email for, um, mm -hmm. to get a gig or I need a, I need to call this person or I need to text this or, you know, just the, the regimented thoughts that you might have during the day. Those other moments are like where those things aren't, infiltrating like you're in the shower and you can just sort of like mind goes usually in the shower uh, mostly my mind goes to the um estranged relationships that i have for some reason like the shower is very like why haven't they called me yet you know like why am i having this weird relationship with my friend you know like that's well clearly your hands are not dirty at that time while you're in the shower so <laughs> yeah. you need to think about something else yeah right yeah. <laughs> you talk a lot in uh you have a lot of jokes and you talk about your estranged relationship with your father. Is that something that's a, a reality? Um, yeah, it is. It is a bit of a reality. Um, are your parents, uh, divorced? They're divorced. Yeah. Yeah. They've been divorced for, you know, since I was in the fourth grade, fourth grade, they got divorced. Yeah. Um, that's often tough on a kid cause you blame it on yourself is the common. Yeah. It's, it's weird because you want to think you, you know, what could I have done differently? How do, how do I keep my parents together? You know, like how can I fix this thing that has nothing even to do with me necessarily? Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that the early mild, but intense enough trauma of parents getting divorced, I think also made me not take certain things for granted that allowed my, my mind to be more open, right? Like I didn't keep this idea that parents get married, you know, parents get married and they stay married. And then Ooh. everything is nice. You know, like everything is, this is how things happen, but like, wait, that's how they're supposed to happen. But sometimes they happen like this. And to me, that is more of the truth of, of life and experience is that we have intentions and actions, but then the results aren't always predictable and the results vary. And right. You know, so, so that was almost like your first, experience of things not going the way you want them to almost like your first heartbreak yeah yeah for sure like they say when you when you love you when your heart is broken usually they say it over a love over love when your heart is broken it's made of glass and you put it back together but it's never the glass it was it's just glued together pieces mm-hmm 
And I think uh, it's like that for a child. I'm also a child of divorce, but I was two and I have an older brother. He was six and uh, he is much more affected by it than I was. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to my mom recently about it and she was telling me a story of her being in the airport uh, with my father and when they were like really saying, this is it, you're flying to a different state. She was staying with the kids and I was just two. I didn't know what was going on. But yeah. My brother was just crying, uh-huh. crying, crying. They, they said their goodbyes at an airport. They're like, let's make this moment for our children as dramatic as possible. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I mean, they had one car. Someone had to drive <laughs> My dad didn't want to pay for a cab, apparently. <laughs> but yeah, fourth grade, I feel like you're cognizant enough yeah. to uh, really uh, take it in. Mm-hmm. And um, did you did your dad not stay in your life? No, actually, I mean, they got divorced, but then I would like see my dad on the weekends or during the summer, go with him for a couple weeks. And even into high school, I would work with him. But I think once my dad moved to Las Vegas and then I moved away, it just sort of everything became more distant. You were in Denver and your dad, your parents got a divorce and your dad moved to Las Vegas. Las Vegas, yeah. Isn't that odd? I mean, I have, you know, I feel like nowadays I hear of friends and families where they get a divorce and the dad will move to another block Mm -hmm. to be in the kid's life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And I don't know if that happened. Well, he, I mean, I was, I was grown up, you know, by the time he moved to Vegas. Oh, so he did stick around. He stuck around in the, in the, in the thing, but it's, it's really only more of late with, you know, I mean, the past however many years where he's been in Vegas. I've been moving around from LA. I saw more in LA when I lived in LA cause Vegas and LA are closer. So I saw that on a map. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. <clears throat> but then, you know, with, with New York and things like that moving here, I mean, my mom's the only one that's come and seen me, um, since I've moved to New York. Wow. And, um, but I have a, you know, I have a brother, sister, dad, all things. And I've, so I go back to Denver a lot. So I get to see them there, but I don't go to Vegas as much because only my dad's there. Mm-hmm. And what, like we're saying with traveling, I go where the gigs are mm-hmm. and getting gigs in Vegas, even though Vegas is a very giggy place. Mm-hmm. It's actually very difficult. Like on this recent tour that I did the only place I could lock down was in Boulder City, Nevada, which is like half hour outside of actual Vegas. It's not the mecca this, of alt comedy, yeah. I imagine. And like a dive bar. Um, but it was actually a fun show and got to see my dad. And um, he, he came to the show and hung out with him. And, you know, we stayed at his place. And it was, it was nice because we had a good talk. Um, but it's just also the realization of like, oh, people, everybody's going through something and has to deal with their own stuff and i think once you get divorced one of the parents is usually the the one that will take care of you or the custody and the responsibility is on their mm-hmm. you know more ingrained in their life and and what they do whereas you know my my dad he was just the you know guy who i got to hang out with on the weekend so that that was sort of where that um you know, and it's also when you're going to a weekend father, you're going out of your life. Yeah, you're not you're not in your neighborhood where mm-hmm. all your friends are. Yeah, yeah. It's like oh, and now I'm going to my other life. Yeah, your dad's not coming to be part of your life. Yep, yep. It's yeah. a different thing. Yeah, it is very different. 
mm-hmm. and and seem seems to be simple and innocuous in many ways, but it actually is very, um, you know. But because I've had a lot of friends that have had, you know, their parents stayed married, and so I, whenever I, you know, to be able to go to somebody's house and have two parents be there, two parents that you can talk to and kind of see how they work. Not that they always had good relationships, right? There was definitely a lot of people that mm-hmm. stayed married that perhaps should have gotten divorced or mm-hmm. whatever, but, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting, but it, you know, it just gives you another thing to think about and focus on and obsess about of like, why is this? And then the, if, if you're obsessed about something, it's a lot easier to mine material from it than if you're like, I like this idea, but I'm not obsessed about it. So it's, you have to work a lot harder to, to figure out the different angles of jokes. But if it's something that you have obsessed about, or it's, you know, a trigger, even you can like, <laughs> for some reason, unleash all this opinion and, and information about it. It's like, yeah, I feel like you can go two ways with it. You can either like approach it head on and try and work it out. Mm-hmm. through humor or you can just go to planet make believe <laughs> and just live in that land yeah you know not i'm not that i'm saying one is better than the other it's just different ways of coping yeah i mean i've been re- reliving the divorce kind of like as i get older kind of re-experiencing it from each of my parents perspective and my older brother, he has kids, so he's really been reliving it uh-huh. from a father's perspective, which I haven't uh, gotten the chance to do. Um, but have you, and one thing I've realized, and maybe you've thought of this, is that from a father's perspective, you're, when you get a divorce and the whole family thing doesn't work out like they wanted it to, the son, the kid, is kind of a reminder of the failure of the whole situation. Mm. I imagine from a father's perspective, it might just be easier to make a clean cut from all of them mm-hmm. and go to a new woman and start all over with a whole new family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there's a little bit of that wanting to escape and start fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that that's more of a luxury of the dad in some cases. That's not the, you know, the custodial parent. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's informed me and my desire, lack of desire to have kids, um, partly for the money reasons why why I would say like I, but also like when you bring somebody into the world, there's so many things that, you know, you're responsible for, not even just the, you know, the formula and cheeseburgers, but the the other things that happen and like fighting. I remember my parents fighting in, in their bedroom and having to experience them fighting from outside of the room and trying to process it because not knowing what they're fighting about, but just knowing that they're fighting Mm -hmm. is even worse because it's just, you're just experiencing the energy of it. Not the no context of like, Oh yeah, he came home late or blah, blah, blah. Like it was, you don't remember particular words or what the fight was about. uh -uh. I just remember the, the energy of, of, of it and the disagreement and argument. And I really don't, you know, I'm adverse to arguments though. I've been in some relationships where I've had to engage in, in arguments and against my, you know, better judgment and will of, of, of being more wanting things to go smoothly. But conflict is, can be around every corner, especially in a relationship. Yeah. It depends on the, on the partner for sure. Yeah. Have you spoken to your dad about, have you kind of relived the divorce and spoken to him about it? Yeah. I mean, this last time when I was in, Vegas recently 
we had a really good talk on his patio and, and kind of, uh, you know, probably one of the best talks we've had. We've always had good little talks. I've, and that's the thing it's, it's, I've always connected with my father. Well, whenever we're around each other and able to, you know, be actually open up to each other and be sincere, but also have fun and, you know, talk frankly with each other, but it's as adults now as adults. Yeah. Yeah. But it's the knowing that I have that, actual relationship with him but not be able to take advantage of it because he's so far away and not very good with calling and Mm -hmm. doesn't know how to text really and all those things that could could really help sustain a relationship you Mm -hmm. know over long distance like my mom calls me all the time you know so much so in fact sometimes it's like oh mom's calling again (laughs) you know um but i guess that's just a the thing of whatever well, I love that evolution of a relationship, especially with parents, when they finally realize that they're kind of done raising you, and it's like they can kind of just accept you as a as a fellow adult. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's taken my dad a while, but I think he's gotten there, mm-hmm. and um, it's an interesting thing. I don't know. My parents don't talk to each other. I mean, they they will when they have to, but um, I kind of grew up with having to kind of uh, protect everybody uh-huh. in the situation. And it's something I've been in therapy for, like feeling like, all right, it's not my responsibility. They hate each other, whatever. Yeah. But has this been something that you've kind of had to walk on eggshells about? Or are they yeah, okay a bit, with... a bit, yeah, because they don't, they don't talk a lot mm-hmm. unless they have to, so... Do they hate each other? Uh, no, I wouldn't say that they hate each other. Um but I would say that there's there's still unresolved issues that they're, they're probably both still affected by that they never, because they were young, so young when they got married and then when they got divorced under the whatever auspices that was that, you know, there was unresolved things that kind of, you know, become the the moniker and the um, the memory of, of the experience as opposed to you know, they'll talk about like, well, we made, you know, we, we got to make great kids and things like that. But uh, about their feelings about each other, they're cordial, they're accepting, but they're by no means, um, bygones, letting bygones be bygones. Yeah. I, <laughs> you know, I feel like some of that is generational too. Uh, now we're much more prone to deal with our feelings rather than to just mm-hmm. cut them off. Um, did you, so you went through a phase where you were blaming yourself for this divorce? When I was younger, uh, perhaps a bit Mm -hmm. feeling that guilt. Um, but not, not after I could, you know, think about it with, with more experience. They say people, uh, children from a divorce relationship have way higher odds of being in failed relationships. Uh. And they say it's it's odd because none of my friends proved this theory right. But <laughs> if you're from a stable family, you usually end up being in a stable relationship, uh-huh. and also being much more willing to work through the hard times. Yeah, that's another thing I read is that from if you're from a divorced family, you're much more apt to be like, forget it, not working, I'm out of here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see that. I mean, I don't know, but boundaries are also proper and uh, knowing when to get out of a volatile situation is important because I think a lot of times, uh, you know, people, because of that, 
that idea of like, well, we have to work through this. Well, sometimes it's just not healthy and, and you're just going around and around with the same argument and trust issues and things like that, that, that the only way to interrupt that negative cycle is by removing yourself or, you know, abusive relationships. That, mm-hmm. But everyone has their own threshold of how much work and effort they're going to put into a relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. Where do you stand with that? How long can you stick in and try and make it work? Well, I've been in my longest relationship was like seven years. Um, that's, that's a good long relationship, but I've been in like a couple two year relationships and four year relationship. And so I've, I've definitely been in, you know, a good number of relationships, but um, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, it's, it's all just, everything has its own life cycle. So you just have to experience it and not try to think too much about it. But the thing that ended my longest relationship was me kind of being like, well, I don't really think I want to have kids Mm -hmm. or even get married necessarily. Has Um, that been tough with dating? Because a lot of women want that. They have a, the agenda. Sometimes it's almost been every other relationship that seemed to seem to have that come up where it's not every single one, but, um, I think it's finding like-mindedness, you know, like-mindedness is the, is the thing, you know, like if we're going to play music together, we should like the same music, mm-hmm. um, and be like to walk in the same way. And, um, when do you discuss that? So you're, you're sure you don't want children. Um, not now. I mean, for me to, for me to say I want children in the future is, it's a weird, to me, future desire is weird. Like, I don't want it now, but I do want it in the future. Like, I only really think of the world as now, and I can only project myself out in the world as like what I like to do now. I mean, that makes sense. How are you supposed to know how you're going to feel in five yeah, years? Yeah, it's an unfair thing to, to do to yourself to say, I want this because how do I know, if I don't want it now, how do I know I'm going to want it then? Because what I want now, I wasn't able to tell that I won't in the past. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, have you, so it's just a political projection. Have you said that real. to a girlfriend and then she thinks you're just full of it or avoiding the question? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> uh, I'm, yeah. I'm not a joke. It seems yeah. like something that Absol- would happen. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, that did happen. And yeah. so I've had uh, really just two relationships where, where I had to be established myself as not really wanting to have kids. Like, I like kids, but I think there's lots of... You know, but doing what I do right now and and not having a, I don't know, you know, how long I'm going to have to keep traveling. I know I wouldn't want to have a kid and have to keep leaving the kid. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't want to go through that myself or put them through that. Right. Um, I have nephews that I occasionally get to see, but, you know, my brother travels a lot and my, essentially my mom, the, the grandma ends up watching my brother's kids quite a bit and the Mm -hmm. kids are, you know, so the kids have all these different relationships and the, the idea of like, it takes a village to raise a baby. I'll, I'll hold your baby and I'll, you know, kick the ball with your, with your, with your kid and then give it back to you and then then leave, you know, and, and (laughs) I love being an uncle. Yeah. Uncles are great. And (laughs) I, I mean, I used to work for before and after school program and I do really like kids. And if I'm older and see a need to, to be, parental or fatherly i also am not against the idea of like adoption or something like that but also like just the idea of mentoring somebody and actually like 
instead of, you know, a lot of my mentors were, most of my mentors were not my father. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, but, but these real key roles in my life of, of examples of, of potential and opportunity and, and ways of thinking though, my father had an impact on that. There's all these other people that I had influence mm-hmm. that, that influenced me that I I'm like, well, that seems to be a very important um, role to play in the world and contributing to society, not just not just pumping out babies that that may or may not be be model citizens, but actually, I hate when, to break the news, but you're not going to pump out a baby yeah. anytime soon. <laughs> well, I mean, pump in a baby. And then. Do do people? Because I get this a lot. Where you know, you you might say, "I don't want children." Be oh, but you're so good with kids. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. but it's yeah. like, yeah, I might be. I'm good with like homeless people, but I don't want my own. <laughs> <you know? laughs> Yeah, it's true. Um, yeah, there. It's usually, it's usually people who are making that decision themselves. Um, be it a, a woman, a mother, or a friend. Oh, come on, man! Why don't you just do it? Because like anybody that does any is making a choice. They have to identify with that choice so much, and then part of that identification um, involves projecting, projecting on the other to other people right. because they want they want you to justify that you know like i want that to justify what i'm doing i need you to i need i need you to make similar choices as me so i can feel good about my choices and not just autonomously affirmation being okay with yeah mm-hmm. like this is what i want this is what you want it's mm-hmm. fine like yeah, yeah but don't you six. want but what do you want but don't you want to va- eventually like own a house like don't you just want to own something? Don't you just want to eventually own something? Well, I like this idea you were saying of wanting to give back, you know, and nurture a child. And I mean, we don't, you can adopt. Mm-hmm. There's also these big brother programs that we could all do. You yeah. know, my stepmom does it to, uh, you know, you just, you have, she's like a big sister or something. Mm-hmm. We could be big brothers to kids. Does that, that, that pay have, well? It doesn't pay. I should get it. <laughs> it pays. How much in, does that pay? <laughs> I know. Well, that's the problem. What's the going rate for charity these days? Right. (laughs) You could write it off. Just make a hourly billing. I mean, I kind of like that idea that you said of uh, wanting to pay it forward that way and give back. I mean, I like, I like the idea of helping people and being like, um, somebody, yeah, a mentor, just somebody that people can know that they can come to me for help or, or advice or guidance or things like that, which are qualities we desire, look for, expect in parents, but aren't always there for whatever reason for, you know, the dad that's always traveling that can't give that advice right then to, you know, people that have gotten divorced and moved away. And, um, I think some cynics would say that's just us wanting to make the divorce right again. Mm. That's awfully cynical, but I've heard that before. Well, I mean, cynicism has its place in in the thought process, but I think um uh, are both uh, your parents remarried? Uh just my dad. Just you. So your mom stayed uh single after that, huh? Yeah, she she dated and dated and dated and it's a tough uh, had, sell, had right? boyfriends, but she I think she never perhaps quite got over the thing and never wanting to get so close again to having anything compromised like what was compromised with, Mm -hmm. you know. 
do you see it from a, a single male perspective? I mean, your mom had three kids. Yeah. I mean, it's a tough sell, right? Yeah. Imagine dating a girl with three kids. Uh-huh. I got three kids. Well, I mean, now nowadays, I mean, the kids are all out of, of the house. But, you know, how do you how do you begin dating again in your 60s? You know, like yeah. that's also its own interesting challenge because you're set in your ways. Probably whoever you're going to meet is probably pretty set in their ways. And Ugh. to like you really have to, uh, I think, you know she's talked about you know these guys that talk to her on the bus on her way commuting from where she lives and things like that but she's you know the guy that's single on the bus is like is the douchebag but the guy that actually is married are you, are you has like, all the charisma you know so she goes to these little things and then that just makes her like i don't want any part of this because right this is the fucked up reality of the situation like the married guy is the one that i'm attracted to or is attracted to me but i don't want any part of that and the, mm. the single guy is the guy that has oh, no maybe, maybe she should be meeting guys outside of the bus <laughs> maybe she should just <laughs> um yeah i mean I, but that's the thing it's it, she's at work she she lives in the suburbs so her social scene is very limited to commuting and um does she online work i think she flirted with it but not necessarily i saw this video i forget where it was but it was some guy um maybe it was in norway or something where he had the sweetest old old mother maybe she was in her 60s or 70s and he set up this whole video and did this whole uh almost like a worldwide campaign to find her husband hmm. and he just kind of made this whole beautiful video and kind of set it out there and she got so many letters and videos she was asking he was asking guys to send in videos for his mom uh-huh it was really sweet and uh. did, do you know what happened did she ended yeah. up getting murdered <laughs> um, <laughs> as, as is the case when you do a yeah <laughs> don't cast your net too wide yeah stay on the bus <laughs> Yeah, that's it's tricky. I like the idea of going through uh, my parents and like seeing it from all their different perspectives as I get older. Mm -hmm. I mean, my mom got lucky and she uh, remarried and was able to have another kid. Oh wow! Yeah. So I also have. Uh, she has three kids, and I remember when my youngest brother left the house and she, I spoke to her on the phone. She was so overjoyed that she was finally done with children in the house. Oh. And I was palpable her excitement. <laughs> she sounds like a terrible person. <laughs> she I never wanted to be a mom. <laughs> finally, stay done. <laughs> she just she worked really hard, you know. Yeah. yeah. But uh, how was your your relationship good with uh with your mom? Yeah, very good. Did she's, I? She's a big. Uh, she's my biggest fan. She is, huh? Um, yeah, yeah, and she's a. Uh, you know, I think uh, of the people in my family, I'm closest with her, like communicate with her the most and open up and, you know. More than your, br you have a brother and a sister? Mm -hmm. Are you the middle? Uh, youngest. You're the youngest. Okay. Yeah. So, so yeah, we talk a lot and she's come out to see me a couple of times and things like that. And she has the, but she also has the freedom to do that. And, you know, mm -hmm. she lives alone and. Are you concerned about her living alone? Do you want her to find somebody? No. No, because, I mean, she lives in the neighborhood that pretty much that my brother lives in. And so 
She has company. She stays alone, but she's, yeah. She always has that sort is, of... Is she envious that your father gets more coverage in your act than she does? <laughs> um, well, I do... Uh, no, but I do... I do have some jokes about her as well. Um, and I've also uh, do a thing where I call her on the phone on some gigs I'll, I'll like call her have my phone plugged into the sound system and then call her on the phone and then have a conversation with her on stage so i tried that a couple times live real like live yeah oh wow yeah the first time you did it did she know what was going on no but now she's privy to it so she's starting to write her own material yeah she's, <laughs> she's starting to include some things but just naturally what she's saying and just the context of me calling my mom and just what how moms talk like any mom would be funny it's the mm-hmm. not that she's not funny but it's just that context of like having a conversation with your mom while on stage and it's, yeah and it's also that thing of the audience knows it's live and anything can happen yeah it's not scripted yeah Though you could probably script a routine you with them. You could script it, but I think <laughs> it works better because we, we have, it's, you know, kind of like with improv, the these things that have happened and then we know we can go to these certain things if we need to or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily, you know, scripted, but there's, you know, she does like to talk about, you know, what are you doing, mom? I'm just watching Everybody Loves Raymond. I sure do love Ray Romano. <laughs> she goes off on this fucking Ray Romano tangent. <laughs> it's so hilarious, but she's just literally being honest. You know, and, you know, even get to, like, other things like that. But, uh, yeah. Well, Ben, yeah. You, you, you're living a great life, man. Oh, well, thank you. Thanks for letting me share my my life with you here today. Yeah, I feel like uh, we covered a lot. I really appreciate you giving us your time. Yeah, how do you edit this down? Or you just uh, you just farted out there? Yeah, I think it's good. Yeah, right? Yeah, I don't really spend too much worries over editing it unless there's something that someone said yeah they don't want mm-hmm. just, could out, you Gary. just could you just bleep out every time i say dad <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. i'm worried about some guest making me crazy with something like that uh-huh. i hope that doesn't happen it won't good it won't um so anything else did we miss anything uh no I, I guess i want to apologize for like derailing the beginning of the podcast we by might thinking, edit that out yeah you can take that out but then it, it did <laughs> Actually, it did lead to some astrology I I stuff it. I so, it. yeah yeah i liked it all right good yeah thanks for having me awesome ben thanks for being here cheers cheers